It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That, of course, is 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app and then type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M. And uh, listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It is a pleasure to welcome to the show uh, Dr. Julie Nagam, and she is the curator for Nuit Blanche, the 2020-2021. And uh, this year it is called The Space. Let me, no, let me do this again. The Space, 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 Between, Between Us, Us, Us. <laughs> I always wanted to do that, Julie. Thanks for allowing me to do that with this show. So again, yes, welcome to the show. And uh, I guess it's pretty exciting this year. Uh, because it, I believe it's the the fifteenth year of the of the show. Yeah, it 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 is the fifteenth year. It's been running for a long period of time, and it usually draws uh, over, uh, I guess, one point two million people that come out. Wow, but of course, yeah. this year this year, of course, is different. Like many things are, uh, it's going to be going uh, virtual, and um, that's the first time it has gone virtual, I guess. Uh, but yeah, like there are several areas that uh, th- that it's going to that it does go into, and um, you know one of the things that I really liked about it was the was the uh, augmented reality portion of that. That really caught my eye, and I think that sounds like something you particularly might be very interested in from your background. For sure, that was the decision as the artistic director to move towards. Um, and AR and VR works. And so the the fun part about uh, Nui in your neighborhood is that we are, people can get really excited about, you know, putting on putting them on any wall. There could be a particular political spot that they feel that needs needs re rejigging. And so I think that I think or my hope is is that people will be having a lot of fun with it. Mm. And of course, uh, as as you mentioned, there are several areas uh, of the uh, the the event this year. You've got the Nui Talks that you mentioned, Nui Live. You've got uh, Nui in Your Neighborhood uh, podcasts, the history element, uh, which is all very exciting and some some really cool stuff. Some of the art looks so fascinating, I have to say. Yeah, I think that's going to be the fun part about having the Nui history is we have a documentation of the last 14 years. And, and part of that documentation is just um, is a database where people can go and see um, the over 1600 artists that have taken place over those 14 years. And, and then the other really fun part of the, of the archive or the history is that we, we've embedded that into the live stream so that you can kind of feel like you're there or at least kind of do a little walk down memory lane to remember specific uh, places and different artworks. And so we mapped it through geolocation or Google Earth and so, you know, you can get a sense of where you are in Toronto and where that project is. That's really cool. Um, now, you're based in Winnipeg. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's true. <laughs> 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 but, uh, of course, this, uh, I guess that's one of the, I kind of guess, advantages of COVID-19. It has gone, made us go virtual. It has made uh, the world smaller in some ways uh, as we're all on this online presence now. Yeah, I used to, I lived in Toronto for a long time, about mm-hmm. nine years. And so I, a lot of the projects that I've been able to do as a Canada research chair 
has allowed me to be very mobile. I mean, not, not right now, obviously, but the, but I think that uh, I've always worked remotely. And so, and as a digital media artist myself, you know, the shift to move into, um, you know, the virtual realm as challenging as me, uh, as for others. Mm. And I would say that, you know, part of our original programming up until uh, June, when we announced that we have to be entirely virtual was, uh, you know, we didn't have the same digital platform that we do, uh, now, but we definitely were, um, invested in opted and virtual reality works. You know, we were definitely doing uh, some kind of version of a podcast and the talks, would we have known that they would have all had to be done on zoom or that the entire event had to move to a virtual? Uh, that was never the plan. I think that the plan would have been a little bit more of a hybrid. Mm. So I, one of the benefits of what we've done this year is that we'll really be able to build on the digital capacity and hopefully by 2021, we'll be able to gather again in public space. How do you think that's going to, uh, from what you just described there, how do you think that will affect uh, the future events? I think it's going to be really challenging. I think that um, a lot of organizations haven't really paid enough attention to their online or digital or virtual presence. And I think that, you know, some organizations are really uh, reimagining what that could be and rethinking what that could be. And then others are, you know, um, much more stagnant of saying like, oh, this is, you know, we've put this online, so therefore it's virtual. Mm. And I think from my perspective, we really want to kind of push those boundaries of what that experience could be. And so the AR and the VR works, or staying in their localized communities, playing with artwork, having fun, engaging, and just kind of creating hope again so that people can can have fun with art. Yeah, cool. Uh, you know, AR and VR, uh, I, I, I've always thought as, 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 of course, and of course you being a digital artist, uh, I, I don't know enough about it, but I always thought it was a, a very cool uh, and futuristic kind of form that we would be actually probably using more than I, than I thought we would have right now, but maybe this is going to change. Well, I think one of the best things that we were able to mobilize because we had a really strong member on the production team that had the capacity to build um, the kind of AR that we don't need an app. You just click immediately mm. on the image of the of the artwork. Mm. You don't need Google, like a, any kind of visor or anything. There's, there's, there's really no uh, anything that is prohibiting you from using it other than you do need some sort of ability, you need a mobile device. Right. And, and unfortunately, you know, we know some of our communities don't have right. access to that. And, and some people, uh, you know, don't have access to much broadband with. And so that's, I, I think, a, a struggle that we still have to figure out how to engage some of those folks in, in some of those remote or rural communities. Right. No. So, yeah. So we've tried to make it accessible, you know, so people will want to engage and play with it. Yeah. And so, you, you know, you really don't need anything other than an, an excitement and an ability to try it and and then some sort of mobile device. And, and it does look, uh, of course, very exciting. Uh, I guess it launched October 3rd um, and it goes up until October the 12th. And people can find out more by going to toronto.ca slash Nuit Blanche and uh, find out more. And in there, if you go to that website, you can get uh, all the information 
on uh, the talks, on the live, on the neighborhood, the podcast, and the history. Uh, and, of course, some, some uh, information on yourself, Julie. It's uh, listed there. <laughs> um, you know, I, I guess the, the other thing that, uh, that comes to mind uh, about this is when you go to the website and you, you see these different areas that you can click on, such as the new talks, it gives you a list, uh, it expands that, it goes into the dates and times, and people can find out when and where things are going on by just uh, by going deeper into the into the site as well. Yeah, for sure. And then um, we go, so um, the, the site then is activated uh, now that you can mm -hmm. actually just go in and see those artworks and then click and then play with the AR and the VR works. It's all embedded into the into the city, the Toronto city website. Mm -hmm. And that same goes with the three um, iPod or three episodes of the podcast. And then the same with the talks, all of the talks that have already happened will be embedded into the website as well. So you have full access to that. And also the new history and then same with the AR and VR works. They're only up until uh, October 12th. And then same with the new live is only up until October 12th. Oh, I was just going to ask you about that, if these would be remaining up there for an indefinite period. So there is there is a timeline on this. Yeah. So the podcasts and the talks and the new history, those will all remain on the website. The And, and what we're trying to do is kind of build our own um, digital assets moving forward to so that people have more information about Nui Blanche in general. Mm -hmm. And, and, and then at the same time, you know, we still need to kind of put on a, an event for Nui Blanche. And so, you know, the, the live and the Nui live and Nui in your neighborhood are really geared towards the opening week of the event. Mm. All right. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. My guest here on Moment of Truth is Dr. Julie Nagam. She is the curator for this year's Nuit Blanche and it's the 15th anniversary of the Nuit Blanche event. And it uh, has the, the largest number of Indigenous artists and curators, including um, its uh, artistic director, Dr. Julie Nagam. Uh, if you don't mind me asking, uh, Julie, what is your background? Sure. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm Métis, uh, Syrian, and German. <laughs> oh, wow. That's a really interesting mix. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was just like, do you want that answer? I was just like... <laughs> And of course, um, this year's uh, event is called The Space Between Us. Um, and, and you said The Space Between Us is, is that a place where, where we, can, we can learn or we can, we, we can share and learn in that space. Yeah, there is totally. There was a lot of work that I've been doing in Australia and New Zealand and Hawaii. And now we've kind of worked, opened up into the circumpolar where we've been working with obviously our circumpolar uh, neighbors here in uh, North North America, but also in Greenland and Finland and mm. Norway and working with some of the Inu and Sami people. Mm. But the, so the idea is that, you know, that we, you know, we have a shared kind of uh, colonial history and understanding, mm. but at, but at the same time, we are very localized and distinctively different. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, so trying to find, those common places. So 
there's a concept that's from the Pacific that's called the VA. And so that's where that kind of concept of thinking about the space between us comes from. And so, you know, I was thinking a lot about how we have so many people coming to Canada to find Canada, their new home, or people who have been forced to relocate, whether that be in First Nations, Métis or Inuit communities, or whether that be exiles or refugees coming from other countries, or whether that be forced and forced um, enslavement coming from uh, the continent or the island uh, islands in the Caribbean or, or Africa. And so I was thinking a lot about you know what draws us together, what gets us what gets us excited, how do we belong to place, how do we think about um, you know our our being in the world, and and then how do we relate to that. And then thinking about the specifically grounding that within an indigenous understanding of place. Mm, that that is really fascinating. Now, with that description and thinking about uh, the space between us as, as this year's uh, Nuit Blanche event, how what excites you uh, uh, the most about about what people will see this year? I think for me, the artists that we have on the selection are some artists that I've worked with for a really long time and some new artists uh, at the same time. And I think that people are gonna be a little bit blown away by the quality and the um, intellectual rigor of some of those artists and the kind of visual aesthetics that come with that. And so, you know, there's, you know, some of the work is really exploring, you know, really strong political issues. And then at the same time, it's trying to open up the space for people to be able to have dialogues that are really important that we are currently having in, having in our in our climate right now. So when we think about the politics of Black and Indigenous lives and what that means, you know, uh, locally and globally, I hope that that work invokes some of that conversation. And and that was its kind of intention. The other thing I would say is that all of the projects that I've done so far are are political. And it's important to me to showcase really strong um, aesthetically, but also politically bound work. And the artists will kind of knock your socks off. I think that, um, you know, so far, you know, people have been really excited by what they've been seeing. And I think that the potential of where we could go with it is really exciting. And I know for a lot of the artists, like, let's say somebody like Jean Marshall, you know, she's a traditional beater. Mm. And, um, you know, the idea of turning her work into an augmented reality piece is just like, you know, the what's the word there, a little the little emoji with the head blow up, you know, <laughs> so I think that, you know, we've really pushed the boundaries of some of that existing uh, practices and work and move them into a digital realm, which I think will be uh, which I, which I think will be fun. Uh, it sounds uh, really exciting, and 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 congratulations to you uh, on the event, and uh, a great title for this year, uh, the space between <laughs> us, as you just just described, um, you know, and and of course it does pull in the idea, of the space between us, uh, you, the digital space uh, could be included in that as well as this augmented reality, uh, virtual reality spaces that that are being utilized in this event as well. Yeah, that's, it's exactly right. I know when we were away at the Sydney uh, Benali and we had to come back because of the lockdown happening mm. globally, uh, I just remember thinking like, uh, you know, there was already a couple of jokes about the, about the title I had picked <laughs> 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 of what that meant in our current climate. And I think it, it only becomes more and more resonant as we continue to social distance right. and 
you know, not be able to gather in public spaces. So yes, uh, it, it was not my intention, but it's definitely worked out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it certainly has in, in more ways than one, but, but that's fabulous. Um, now you mentioned earlier and you are a Canada research chair in indigenous arts collaboration and digital media, um, and an associate professor at the university of Winnipeg. Uh, what is it uh, that you, you do at the university of Winnipeg? Uh, it's a good question. I'm sure lots of my faculty would have that. <laughs> that <question>. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, right now, we actually have a really incredible project. Um, I'm building um, an Indigenous digital media lab called Abajibawan, uh, which is uh, basically yes. means the ripples and the water of movement. And so I'll also be a co-director with another Canada research chair who works in health and um, and we're going to have a collaborative research center. So we've got about 4,000 square feet that we're taking over at the University of Winnipeg, and we're really excited. Uh, we're just in the process of um, going to construction mode, and we hope to have that all ready and finished by January. And I think on a on a base level, you know, I, I teach some courses that uh, around Indigenous uh, art history, and uh, this January I'm teaching a course specifically on um, Indigenous digital media. So, uh, you know, I think that it'll be a lot of fun. I also really enjoy um, working with uh, students. And so we have a lot of like all the great projects that I'm talking about. We've had a lot of student involvement. So with the, you know, with even with Nui Blanche and the project that I was talking about with the Circumpolar and the Pacific, you know, we've got lots of graduate students and undergraduate students coming along with us. And we've been training and mentoring BIPOC students. And we had actually we had about six Indigenous students come with us, uh, two of them from Manitoba uh, to go to uh, the Sydney biannual and do an Indigenous methodology workshop. So I think that there's lots of, um, you know, exciting potential that happens in Winnipeg. And so, you know, I also like the idea of bringing a little bit of the prairies back into mm. Toronto. <laughs> now, you mentioned the, uh, the digital courses that you, you teach. A lot of universities, uh, of course, going online. Does this uh, were your are your courses basically for local students enrolled, or, or can can anyone now uh, look to join these these uh, courses online? That's a good question. I mean, I lived in northern Manitoba for a chunk of my undergrad and graduate school at the University of Manitoba, and I mm -hmm. did do online learning mm -hmm. uh, back in. A long time ago when it's not as <laughs> prevalent, I guess, as it is now. Um, that's a good question. I think that anybody who enrolls as a University of Winnipeg student can can take a course. So I, I think that, yes, I think there's lots of people that are uh, distance learning right now. So uh, definitely, you know, uh, I am planning or hopeful that depending on what the environment looks like in the January, that we could, um, depending on how big our class is, if there's any opportunity for mm. meeting in real life, but we'll, we'll see, we'll see what the future holds. Mm. Um, I see you're also the co-director of, if I can get this, Kishkadish uh, uh, Collaborative Research Center. I'm not sure if I got that name right, but. Yeah, that's, uh, that's the one that I was just talking about okay. with the digital media lab that we're ah. building at the University of Winnipeg. Cool. And then once that's completed, what will that, what will that do and, and who will be allowed to, uh, to uh, utilize it? The idea is that it would be open to 
community organizations and community members. It also be open, obviously, to the University of Winnipeg students and, and students across Canada. I think that lots of the projects that we've been doing, which has been incredibly fun, you know, have a really good collaborator over at Concordia University, Dr. Heather Agluliorte, who's the um, one of the only Inuit uh, scholars in art history. And so her and her colleague, Jason Lewis, they're, you know, they're building a, uh, a lab together. And so we would definitely, we have definitely been collaborating and moving towards that. There's also a brand new indigenous lab called IM4 in Vancouver um, that's spearheaded by uh, four indigenous matriarchs, really incredible work that they're doing over there. And I think that, um, you know, the plan will be to kind of collaborate and think about how, how to build that capacity. And because of the international projects, you know, there's a, the first ever indigenous uh, design and media lab that runs out of, um, out of Wellington, New Zealand, apropos. We have another lab that we're working with in Monash uh, University in uh, Melbourne, Australia. And so we're looking towards building those kind of uh, cross-cultural relationships and international relationships where we hope that we can, we can utilize our opportunities at the university to be able to mobilize students to have new opportunities and, and uh, new adventures. And so, you know, we really want to open that space up and make sure that it services the community, but also is training and mentoring new generations of BIPOC students to change the world. Hmm. Cool. Listen, we only have a few minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Very cool. (laughs) Uh, We only have a couple of minutes left, but I want to bring it back to the the space between us and Nuit Blanche uh, running up until uh, October 12th. Uh, Any final comments? Anything else you think we should mention about this just before we finish up? Sure. I really hope that people get the opportunity to listen to the podcast. I feel like we're mapping out a history that um, really needs to be told. And so the first episode grounds itself in belonging to place. And we look at uh, senior established artists, you know, uh, Cheryl LaRondell, Dr. Duke Redbird, mm. uh, Michael Belmore, and, um, and Shelley Nero. Mm. And then we move into the second episode of Thinking About Unsettling Place, where we interview Dr. Jolene Rickard and Dr. Nagaro Ellis, who are both working from... Uh, two different perspectives, one being a Maori perspective and the other one being a Haudenosaunee perspective. Mm. And then we weave in Odario Williams and Natasha Henry thinking about um, enslavement and um, that relationship to Indigenous folks and our kind of complicated history within uh, slavery. And then and then our third episode, we move into belonging, uh, longing and belonging. And we look at some of the artists internationally like Amarita Heppi, um, uh, Raw, uh, who's an um, uh, Iranian artist that's um, situated now in Toronto, but grew up in Montreal and does this incredible work on this futurism around um, Iranian women's stories of violence. And so I think that there's just so many overtones of thinking about, you know, how we weave our different stories to place. And I think that, you know, my goal with the two-year curatorial theme with Nuit Blanche is to allow us to make to continue those stories and to try and find some sort of spot of connectivity and uh, shared understanding of place. And I think that um, I'm hopeful or excited that people will have uh, really fun and engaging uh, with the AR and VR and the live stream. And then I, and then I'm also hopeful that there's kind of a deep critical think around, um, you know, where we are situated 
specifically Toronto, its history, and thinking about how, you know, the overtones of the complicated uh, histories that we have here in Canada and more broadly globally. Mm, nicely said. Uh, great way to to uh, get people uh, interested in catching the remaining part of Nuit Blanche up until October the 12th. And as you mentioned, uh, they can go there, they can see things that have already, some of the uh, the, the, the podcasts that are going to be up there until October the 12th. And you mentioned uh, that some of those things will remain, but uh, but a number of these things will only be there until October the 12th. So people need to go online to see them uh, as soon as they can. Yeah, for sure. And I wanted to say to you, Miigwech, Marcy, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm really happy to get this opportunity to talk to you. And I also, I know I left it on a really deep and uh, <laughs> academic note, but I, I do want to say that the you know, we are really excited to put together a robust program with lots of interesting uh, and exciting work that people I think will really have a lot of fun engaging with. Nicely said. And thank you once again. And, and Chimiguet Yawa for joining us. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. And, and uh, congratulations once again on a Nuit Blanche 15 year, the space between us and uh, and uh, your curatorial theme, the space between us as artistic director. Thank you so much. You bet. That's Dr. Julie Nagam. She is the, as I mentioned, artistic director of this year's uh, Nuit Blanche, The Space Between Us. It runs up, up until October the 12th. Uh, catch it online. And you can find out more by going to toronto.ca backslash Nuit Blanche and get all the details. And you can get everything online to tell you all about all the stuff we've been talking with uh, Dr. Julie Nagam uh, about the, the event this year. And uh, as I said, uh, it is this year, it's the largest number of Indigenous artists and curators uh, that have been taking place uh, over, the, over the 15 years. And uh, also, it's uh, gone virtual, so it's online. And uh, it's very exciting about some of those things that uh, are included, such as the virtual and uh, augmented reality portions of that as well. So, a great speaking with Julie. We thank her for taking the time to join us. Uh, check it out again the space between us, Nuit Blanche, this year. And don't go away. We're going to be right back with more right here on Moment of Truth. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, Type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It is a pleasure to welcome to the show James Cullingham and he is a filmmaker, historian and journalist. He's an adjunct graduate faculty member at the Canadian Studies and Indigenous Studies at Trent University as well as part-time professor in the Faculty of Arts at Seneca College. And he's the president of Tamarack Productions in Peterborough, Ontario. Now, that sounds very familiar to me, James, Tamarack Productions. Why? Why does that sound so familiar to me? Well, I think we've talked about my film about Duncan Campbell Scott. Um, I think um, over the years, um, perhaps some of your listeners are aware of a series called As Long As the Rivers Flow mm. that I was proud to work on with people like Gil Cardinal and mm. Peter Raymond and Alanisa Bomsawin and Loretta mm. Todd. That goes back. That's when I started right. the company. But I, I've been making documentaries with Tamarack since about 1990. There you go. 
Well, thank you for providing us uh, with that information. Today, uh, we're here to talk with you about um, Canada's statues. Of course, the statues, prime minister's statues, they've been in the news uh, quite a bit recently, especially some of, them, uh, some of them have been pulled down, defaced, et cetera, et cetera, specifically uh, the Sir John A. Macdonald uh, uh, statues that are around the country. And that is because of his legacy. As, uh, as we all know, the legacy uh, uh, of Black Lives Matter has, has really uh, brought to the fore uh, about um, their, uh, the mistreatment of black people, uh, slavery, et cetera, et cetera. And that has expanded into Canada and specifically with the indigenous people and the treatment of indigenous people in Canada. Uh, hence the residential school system and, uh, and, and uh, Sir Johnny MacDonald was not only the, uh, the founding uh, father, uh, one of the founding fathers and the first prime minister, but he also had the legacy of uh, wanting to uh, and, 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 and put women, uh, and I believe he, he, he starved indigenous people so, so they could make way uh, to, to move them out of their, their territory. Uh, not exactly a great legacy to have. Well, it's a complicated, um, fraught situation. Let me be very clear. I am not an Indigenous person. Mm. Uh, I'm not a <clears throat> person of color. My family came to this uh, part of the world in either the 1900s or early part of the uh, 20th century. Uh, the 1800s or early part of the 20th century from uh, Italy and England, um, to be specific. So I am um, a newcomer, a settler, use the word that you want. Um, McDonald's legacy is extremely complicated um, and there's no excusing some of the horrible um, things that the Canadian state uh, did when he was um, prime minister in terms of residential schools, in terms of um, the assault on uh, Métis nationalists in uh, Red River that would become um, Winnipeg. Um, you know, those are facts of Canadian history and Canadian life. Um, I think that it's important for us to remember those facts. And my concern about effacing statues is simply this. Uh, that I'm not sure that always helps us understand history. Maybe on occasion there are ways to um, look at a statue of McDonald's or other individuals in our history um, differently and to think about them in a more contextualized way as a historian and as a citizen of this place called Canada, I'm very interested in, 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 in thinking and wondering um, how those things can be done. And, and there are a few examples, not only in Canada, but elsewhere that maybe could be instructive. I, I guess um, as I was thinking about this, to, to not remove statues, certainly makes some sense in, in regard to the idea of the education. It, it's like, you know, I, I know some indigenous people that, that want all the residential schools, and there's only very few of them left. They want them burned to the ground. They, they, they want them gone because they, they, the history, it, it's so close to them that they don't want the reminder. But that reminder, as we say, to remove these things would then remove the memory, and that's almost like letting people off the hook. So, so that idea of keeping the statues, not not facing them, not uh, removing them, makes makes sense. Um, I guess the thing that comes to mind is, is a picture tells a thousand words, as we've we've all heard, and it, it's it's at this point 
how those statues uh, regard those people, how they were how they were uh, um, um, uh, uh, constructed uh, at the time to to make those people look, and mostly they are there to make them look uh, regarded with um, with a great honor because of what they did. Hence, um, that that might might give people the wrong impression. It might give people the wrong impression, but what if another uh, plaque or statue was put up that provided um, context, a different way of looking at that person? You know, when I wander around Parliament Hill or um, the Ontario legislature or, you know, the park opposite uh, City Hall here in Nogajiwanong, Peterborough, um, when I look at a statue, I think about that person in whatever context I can summon. It's not necessarily exclusively um, glorification. Mm. You know, Duncan Campbell Scott, who I've made a film about and I've written about extensively, he was working for Johnny McDonald and mm. other prime ministers. And uh, some were conservative, some were liberal in the course of a long career. And Scott had um, direct responsibility for many of the worst aspects of uh, Canadian, um, what was called Indian policy, right. including residential schools. Mm -hmm. You know, he's buried at um, a cemetery near Ottawa while it's in Ottawa. And um, along with many famous Canadians, including some prime ministers. And now there is a plaque that um, people associated with Truth and Reconciliation Canada were able to put up that's on the path as you go towards Duncan Campbell Scott's grave that just simply says Duncan Campbell Scott was a prime factor in these policies, including residential schools, which have been described as uh, tantamount to cultural genocide by Truth and Reconciliation Canada. It is a very useful reminder for uh, people who are taking that walk. And um, someone like Scott, very complicated in some respects as a poet, uh, as a writer of other mm -hmm. texts, as a musician, a very accomplished guy. And this is the important part. Very, very admired in his time. Yes. Um, and I think we need to ask ourselves why that is. Just going back to McDonald for a second, um, I think seizing upon McDonald is problematic in the sense that, of course, he wasn't alone. Uh, you know, I read after the um, statue in Montreal, I guess it maybe perhaps that's the most recent case involving mm. McDonald. And it's pretty dramatic. I mean, people took down his statue and his his head was rolling down the street right. in, uh, in Montreal. That's right. <clears throat> it's fairly graphic. Um, I read a whole bunch of uh, accounts, including uh, on the Radio-Canada website, which said that uh, MacDonald was responsible for the Indian Act. Actually, he wasn't. Mm. The Indian Act was passed when Alexander Mackenzie was uh, prime minister. Mm. So that's not to say that uh, MacDonald wasn't responsible when he was in power after that uh, short um uh, government, uh, well, the government of Alexander Mackenzie, still he carried on, as did every prime minister till the present day, into mm -hmm. the 21st century. Right. The Indian Act is still with us. Yes, uh, It's been changed, but it's still there. It's still shameful. 
It's still a colonial um, artifact that is Canadian law. And to associate that or the residential school system exclusively with someone like John A. Macdonald really puts takes a whole bunch of people off the hook. I think it would be good to think about, okay, Macdonald was elected several times as prime minister. He served for a very long time. What was the nature of Canadian society and Canadian thinking that would allow that to happen? And who were the, um, the other players who un- allowed those policies to carry forward? And in that sense, obviously the Christian churches, when it comes to um, residential schools, are culpable. Uh, some of them have apologized uh, quite formally. And um, so I think, once again, thinking as a non-Indigenous, non-person of color, historian, storyteller, I think it behooves us to consider the context. And if, if historical commemoration done thoughtfully helps us to do that, I think we're better to do that than to simply try and uh, wipe away the past. Yeah, uh, for sure. And and I'm glad you mentioned about the other players because absolutely, he's he, he may have been the prime minister, but he didn't act alone. He, he uh, of course, uh, had uh, many other people working with him. I'd like to go back to what you said about the plaque, which is great. I'm glad that you, you noticed that. And I want to ask you this, though. As you were walking and you saw this plaque, how does the, how does the plaque... Uh, because I'm trying to get the sense of the of the physicality and what what the impression is that people are seeing when they're there and they see something like this. Is the plaque, would you say, large enough or or noticeable enough to e- equal uh, the the offset of of what is there? Do you, do you know what I'm I'm getting at there? I think it's very evident. Um, it's very. I'm not sure it's exactly the same. I mean, I've seen it, I photographed it, but I don't have the image in front of me as I speak. Um, it's like other historical Canadian mm. markers. It's mm. you know, it's it's metal. Yep. It's uh, in both official languages. It's um, very uh, clear, and I I think that uh, it's pretty much. Um, you could walk by it and ignore it, but you can walk by just about anything and ignore it. Uh, it's, it, you know, it's very, uh, it's very evident. Right. And, and, and also, you know, someone like Scott, um, he's buried there. He still has uh, members of his, of his family um, living in the Ottawa area. I mean, the grave is to them his gravesite. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's still there. Right. And, um, and, but I think that, uh, those of us who are not directly associated with Duncan Campbell Scott, not his family members or, you know, descendants of his close friends, for example, um, can certainly get a, a, a good, um, dose of contextualization of, um, other aspects of his life that, you know, aside from being a father and a family member and, um, a member of the Ottawa elite. Mm. This is what he was doing that had great political and historical effect in Canada. Mm. So if we can extra- extrapolate a little bit then on that idea of the plaque and not removing, say, Sir Johnny Macdonald's statues and putting up a plaque um, to uh, to uh, explain the good and the bad or, or you know, those those things. 
uh, statues are usually quite large. I guess this is what I'm trying to say. Would the plaques equal, or how would you see that working then in terms of, you know, making sure that that the the points that are updating that person's life and career and the things that they did would would equal to the balancing of of what people are hoping uh, to have um, by removing the statue, I guess. I think that's a very good point. I think thinking of it, you know, graphically like that. Okay, what are, um, in terms of their dimensions? What mm-hmm. is the um, difference in size or the impact? The case of McDonald in that park in Montreal or other statues of McDonald around the country, um, some of them are large. Um, there's no question about it. And um, um, I think that we need to have uh, a prolonged discussion that Indigenous people and others affected uh, negatively by the policies of someone like McDonald um, need to be part of, it seems to me. And I mean, imagine a situation where if we had a, a park, there was a statue of McDonald, but there was also a statue of Louis Riel or Big Bear, mm. similar size, um, commemorating their contribution to our society mm. and to um, further an understanding of um, Canadian history to understand that, you know, McDonald was not uh, uncontested um, and that there wasn't um, people who suffered as a result of his policies. And I think we also have to have the humility and the empathy to understand that uh, there are a great number of people who feel legitimately, who may have come from oppression in Europe or elsewhere, who feel that the Johnny McDonald's of the world gave them and their families opportunities that they might have not had otherwise. Mm. Um, there's no question that it seems to me, looking at the Confederation period, McDonald and others clearly decided, well, rather than becoming part of the United States, there should be this thing called Canadian federalism. Now, um, a lot of people in the 21st century would say that it's a good thing that Canada is not part of the United States. Well, the politicians of uh, McDonald's era, as imperfect as they were, made that critical determination and acted upon it. Um, That's the reason that Confederation happened in the 1860s. Um, So I'm not defending John A. McDonald, and I'm not um, ignoring um, the assault on indigenous people specifically that his government and others uh, in the post-Confederation period, right up until the present day, have um, have enacted. But I think um, it's important to to, uh, to put it in context and to. Um, and to take a careful look at maybe other ways of looking at it. Um, Certainly in his adopted Canadian home of Kingston, there's a lot of people who aren't necessarily of the far right. Mm. They consider themselves to be well-meaning Canadians. And they think that, you know, um, McDonald needs to be um, considered if not more respectfully, at least more carefully. Mm. Um, so it's a very, very important discussion to have. 
and I'm glad we're having it, but people taking matters into their own hands and trashing statues, um, I'm not prepared to say that that necessarily um, furthers things. And maybe I'm wrong, um, uh, but um, I think there's other things that we can consider as a society. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELMNTFM and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Moment of Truth and my guest is James Cullingham. Please don't go away because we will be right back with more right here on Element FM right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELMNTFM and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Moment of Truth and my guest is James Cullingham. And it's a pleasure to have him here. He's a filmmaker, historian, and journalist. He's a part-time professor and faculty of arts at Seneca College. He's a president of Tamarack Productions in Peterborough, and he's an adjunct graduate uh, faculty member of the Canadian Studies and Indigenous Studies at Trent University. It's a pleasure to have James here. We're talking about statues uh, and the uh, should some of them be removed, such as the, the Sajani McDonald statues. Uh James, you mentioned the thinking at the time, and I thought that was really important as well, because you talked about not it's not just Sir Johnny MacDonald. It was the team of people he had around him and the people he was working with that went along with these policies and things that happened. And and that plays into, of course, the whole picture of of uh, of we when we look back at history and we see that period of time and see what the policies were that affected indigenous people specifically, as we're, we're talking about. Um, and, and I guess, you know, I guess, you know, we, we don't know specifically what they were thinking, but it stands, I guess, to reason when you think about it, that they, they did these things. And when you think about the, the, a policy to, to starve people, uh, such as Johnny McDonald did to, to get them to move, um, to force them out of the way, um, you would only think that they would do something like that because, they knew they could get away with it. Yes, no? Um, I think we have to add to the list in your question of people around mm. McDonald's is don't forget Canadian voters. Mm. Now, yeah. the electorate was not as representative as it is today and absolutely significantly included very, very few Indigenous people. Mm. And in fact, until 1960, as I'm sure you well know, um, Indians, and that is, you know, the mm -hmm. legal term, mm -hmm. um, and that's the term, that, uh, you know, the Indian Act, were right. prohibited from voting uh, yes. if they were living on a reserve. Yes. Now, enfranchisement happened gradually at different way, different times, but um, the conservative Prime Minister, John Diefenbaker, at least um, extended the franchise to Indigenous people dramatically, but that was 1960. That's 93 years after mm. Confederation and after Canadian voters supporting both conservative and liberal governments agreed 
that the Indian Act, among other repressive measures against indigenous people in Canada, were legitimate. Mm. I'm sorry, but they voted for these governments. Mm -hmm. Therefore, they share the um, mm. culpability. Right. Um, and um, there's no question that at times the, you know, one of the unfortunate myths of Canadian history that are shared by far too many people and sadly promulgated by some political leaders in Canada is that, you know, the taking of the Canadian West was peaceful, unlike those nasty Americans. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's nonsense. You know, two campaigns, two military campaigns against uh, Métis people would um, suggest otherwise. Mm the kidnapping of children and putting them in residential schools would by the state would suggest otherwise. Mm. And the selective withholding of rations, which McDonald and others, to my understanding, did. I'm not a specialist in that area, but there's no question that food was weaponized right. by the um, Indian department, uh, by Indian agents, working for prime ministers like McDonald from time to time. There's no question that happened. And of course, um, something that um, has been documented extremely well by some historians and by the filmmaker, Alex Williams, um, the past system, you know, mm. the extensive yeah. control of uh, movement by indigenous people yeah. um, on reserves more often than not in the prairie provinces by Indian agents, which was unconstitutional, illegal, and was advanced by McDonald, but it was also pursued by prime ministers, certainly into the Second World War period, certainly into the 1940s. And I think the research shows that some, some agents, even though the policy, illegal as it was, was was officially withdrawn, I believe, in 1947. There, are, there, there's some evidence that it continued into the 1960s. And the psychological impact on people who, for generations, thought, "Oh, well, I can't leave, or I can't go to university, or I can't do this, or I can't do that, unless the Indian agent gives me a pass." Mm -hmm. um, that was um, ingrained into the uh, the political culture, and that it had a devastating impact. Right. Um, yeah. And, and not to mention, uh, you, you brought up the, the idea of not being able to vote. Of course, they also could not hire a lawyer to defend themselves. Yeah. And, and uh, that was another uh, point. Yeah, I think it's about 1927 until at least 1951. And uh, it made, um, you know, um, governments. And this is this is after McDonald's time. Um, but uh, I believe. Uh, me and King, others were prepared to go along with the idea that oh, we can't have, you know, so-called Indians organizing politically or hiring lawyers to mm. pursue their claims. So mm. they outlawed it. Yeah. Uh, quickly, I know you have to run, uh, but just before you go, I'm just wondering about if we can and bring it back to the uh, to the the idea around renaming streets, because one of the big issues was the the Dundas Street in Toronto being renamed uh, because of the Scottish politician uh, Henry uh, Dundas, who it's named after, and uh, and his uh, his work to actively uh, uh, delay the abolition of slavery. Yeah, it's uh, quite a story, and 
I no longer live in Toronto, but I, you know, I lived there for 30 to 40 years. Mm. Um, it is um, remarkable to consider um, Dundas's um, attitude towards slavery, mm. this specific individual. Mm -hmm. The fact that he is commemorated in Scotland um, and there, are, you know, it's not just Dundas Street. Obviously, it's Dundas. It's the Dundas yes, Highway. Right. Uh, there's there's more. Yeah. Um, so I think it's a discussion that Toronto has to have. And from my understanding, um, the activists who were behind the petition, which the last count I saw had 14,000 signatures, mm -hmm. um, the mayor has taken this very seriously. The city is discussing it. So uh, perhaps it will be renamed. Right. Um, at the same time, Henry Dundas, about whom, whom I know very little, um, it's important to consider, okay, this is a, a very influential Scottish politician, political figure, um, resisting uh, abolition. He mm -hmm. wasn't alone, once again. Um, and what was the thinking? And why is it that um, clearly, as people started to name towns and streets after him, mm -hmm. it wasn't top of mind for people considering his um, legacy? Right. Why is that? Right. We're, we're looking at it differently mm -hmm. and it, that's probably, that, that is a good thing. Mm -hmm. Right. Good point. Uh, James, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. I want to thank you for taking the time to, to join us on the show. I know you have to run and go do some teaching. So, uh, I just want to say thanks again for joining us. David, always a pleasure. Take care and thank you for the opportunity. You bet. And look forward to speaking with you again. Good. Take care. All right. Take care. That's James Cullingham. He is a filmmaker, historian, and journalist. He's an adjunct graduate at the Faculty Member of Canadian Studies and Indigenous Studies at Trent University, as well as a part-time professor in the Faculty of the Arts at Seneca College. And he's the president of Tamarack Productions in Peterborough. We've been speaking to him on the topic of renaming streets, as well as should we remove statues uh, pertaining to such things as the ones around Sir Johnny MacDonald and the legacy of these people. That's our show for today. I want to thank you for listening each and every day here on Moment of Truth and Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa and everywhere across the country. I'm your host, David Moses. Thanks again. We'll see you next time. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.